Why don't I pray and we'll get started with our uh, blue chart Saturday. God, thank you for these ladies. I thank you for this ministry, for its intent to help with the fundamental discipline of corralling ourselves, of shepherding our own hearts, and to, to bring ourselves before your word regularly, to feast on your word, to understand your word, to meditate on your word, to obey your word, to listen to your voice in your word. And most of all, Lord, to know you. You are everything to us, and we find so easily uh, temptations to distractions, to other loves, uh, even to things which displease you. And we need your help, even this morning, uh, to give us the tools that we need uh, to think rightly, uh, to recalibrate our affections, our desires, our thoughts uh, around the ways that you think, uh, around the priorities that you have. And we know that these are for our infinite good, and they are for your glory. And so we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Dina, Janet, and Jeanette, do you know what you're doing? Because I'm going to erase this. It was so beautifully written in plum and wonderful font, but I'm going to use the whiteboard. All right, um, we're looking at this blue chart this morning, and as a way of introducing, there's so much material on this Um and it really is difficult to gather what's there in one sitting or two or 12. So um, what I want to do is is give some background to the blue chart and, and where it came from uh, that I think will help drive why does it exist and, and why is this session in Wellspring? Because I think it answers the question fundamentally, why must I shepherd my heart? What is it about me? What is it about my heart? that requires constant care. Uh, it's like the car that I drove in high school uh, that pulled to the left um, into oncoming traffic if you took both hands off the wheel. Uh, I need to keep both hands on the wheel of my heart. Why is that? And so what we want to do this morning is attempt to answer that question and maybe give us some, some ways to think about that well. So the blue chart is an attempt at systematic theology on a specific topic. And systematic theology is trying to understand in a systematized way what the Bible says about a given topic. And, and what you're looking at on the blue chart is something of anthropology systematized. In other words, what does all of the Bible have to say about man? And I want to give you a little bit of the history of, um, of the development of what you see there. Um, and, and I'll work uh, out of order for just a moment. Uh, years ago, um, some of the Wellspring ladies came and asked the question, if I have a new heart, then why do I have to shepherd it? In other words, if, if I have a new heart and that new heart comes miraculously, supernaturally from God by his grace, why does it need any work? Why would God give me something that's tainted, corrupted. I mean, doesn't the new heart negate Genesis 6-5? I 
the, the thoughts and intentions of the heart are only evil continually. I mean, I have a new heart. Isn't that the old heart? And doesn't it eliminate Jeremiah 17, 9? The heart is deceitful and wicked above all else. Who can know it? Who can understand it? Well, yeah, but I have a new heart. <laughs> so I don't have to worry about Genesis 6, 5 and Jeremiah 17, 9 and the wellspring theme verse, which is what? What is it? Okay, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. What does it need guarding for if it's this wonderful, beautiful new gift from God at salvation? Um, So uh, that produced something of a formalization of a doctrine of man systematized to understand, okay, what is this new heart? How does it fit in? Uh, Who am I? What am I like? And if you're a believer, something radically has changed for you. You were born once. And you were born spiritually dead, but you were born again unto new life and things are different. And so this is an attempt to explain who am I? What am I doing here? Why must I shepherd my heart? I mean, these are basic fundamental questions we must have. So um, for me, this chart began 17 or 18 years ago um, with a book by Thomas Boston. And you can write this title down. Thomas Boston is the author. Uh, The title of the book is Human Nature in Its Fourfold State. Human Nature in Its Fourfold State. And what I want to do is walk through Thomas Boston's four categories or four states of man. And you're thinking, wait a second. Fourfold state? We got a trifold blue thing. There's a, there's a mathematical problem here. Uh, yes, there are notes, right? Oh yes. You may, you may, you may write on the hand. There are printouts. Um, so the, the chart itself is hard to write on. Um, so there's uh, paper notes for you to take notes on. Okay. Um, what's not in the blue chart and what's not in your notes is Thomas Boston's first state of man. Anybody read that book, by the way? Okay. Um, I, I recommend it heartily. And it comes with a caveat. Uh, like many of the Puritan writers, if you've read the Puritans, sometimes they use scripture in a way that we don't necessarily use scripture. Uh, they can sometimes um, take an Old Testament illustration and make it really flowery and extravagant. You go, man, that's so cool. I never saw that before because it's not actually there. But it, um, so just, just some caution. Um, the, the theology he puts forth is, is great and it's just life-changing stuff. And some of the ways he uses scripture would be more loose than we would. Is that fair? Okay, so um, Thomas Boston lays out mankind in four different phases. And, and the first one is Adam and Eve in the garden. And the reason this doesn't make the blue chart is because it's really not about you. The blue chart's about you. Okay, so we, we've left off Thomas Boston's first state. But it's going to be important for us to think through today by way of contrast and by way of anticipation. Because what Adam and Eve experienced in the garden is different than what you experienced when you were an unbeliever. And it's different than what you experience now in Christ And there are some similarities and differences to what we'll experience in the fourth state of man, the eternal state of man. Um, The other difference between the blue chart and um, Thomas Boston 
is when you get to the eternal state or the eternal destiny of man, what we've called the heavenly man, Thomas Boston splits that up into two destinies, heaven and hell. Right? And so the blue chart is written for believers and helping believers navigate uh, my humanity in my present state of a mixed condition. Um, and so the focus is not what happens to unbelievers when they die. But Thomas Boston addresses that. So what is the eternal destiny of man, heaven or hell? Um, and so as we walk through the, the various states of man, is it, can we see the whiteboards from where you're at? Is it, it's probably difficult on the edges over there. Um, we're going we're gonna to think about the various states of man in relationship to a couple of categories. God, others, sin, the universe. Let's say sin. Uh, the universe work and sin. And there are other categories we could put on the board, but but these will be helpful kind of broad categories to think about what changes uh, happen from state to state. If we think about Adam and Eve in the garden, um, what, how would you describe Adam and Eve's relationship to God? What was it like? Yes, Genesis 3 tells us that God walked with them in the cool of the day. Um, what we have there is immediate fellowship with God. That is unmediated. No go-between. Just direct access to God in the garden. Really remarkable. Um, conversation, interaction, the very presence of God in the garden. Okay. Um, anything else? Peace. Humanity was at peace with God, not enmity, not war, not hostility, not in mind, in actions, in thoughts, feelings, etc. Okay, that's good. Um, how would you describe humanity's relationship with humanity in the Garden of Eden? How did people treat each other? No conflict. No conflict. Unity. Unity. Unashamed. When God finished his created order, which included uh, man, it was very good. Right? Everything was very good. Um, that includes the relationship between man and woman. The one thing that isn't good in Genesis uh, 1 and 2, it was not good for the man to be alone. Um, and then he created woman. And, and so just this... Fantastic reality that the relationship between people, between humans in the first state of man was glorious, wonderful, sinless. Can you imagine conversations? Just a conversation, right? The, the human tongue sets for us on fire, right? Where, where words are many, sin is sure to follow. Can you imagine many words and no sin following? Can you imagine a single conversation? Where there's no misgivings, no misunderstandings, no assumptions, no, what are they really getting at? What's the agenda behind that? Uh, nothing faulty on the communicator's end, nothing faulty on the receiver's end, just beautiful, wonderful, glorious conversation. Right? If we just limit our thoughts to what was talking like in the Garden of Eden, it's like, oh, wow. And it's a bit of a foretaste of heaven, right? Okay, uh, what was uh, the relationship of humanity to the universe like in the Garden of Eden? What was it? Equality. 
Okay. Yeah, you have these uh, specific commands that God placed Adam in the garden to cultivate it and to keep it. Okay, there was care. There was governance. Man was placed by God with the commands to multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. The Hebrew word put the kibosh on it. Um, And not in any sinful way. But sinless, selfless governance, stewardship. In in every respect, man was God's sub-regent in God's created order. A king under the king of kings. Right, this is where C.S. Lewis gets it right. The, the sons of uh, Adam and the daughters of Eve are kings and queens of the imaginary world, Narnia. Um, that's a biblical frame of mind. That humanity was designed for regal, sub-regent governance of God's universe. That was the Garden of Eden. And, and that was to apply for all of God's image bearers, pre-fall, populating and filling the earth. This was God's design. Okay, not his decree of will. That's another topic. Okay, but this is what God uh, wanted man and woman to do from the beginning. Um, tell me more about the universe. What was it like in this first stage of man? No death. Yes. Okay, and we know this by contrast because of the world we live in now. That first world, there was no second law of thermodynamics. Uh, Things breaking down into chaos. Uh, There was no rust. There were no moths eating sweaters. Right? Um, Thieves didn't break in and steal. All this stuff from the breaking down order of things didn't exist then. Things change. And we know the change by the contrast to the next phase. Um, What else do we know about the universe? Okay. Bountiful, luxurious provision. Um, what does God say to the man uh, about the garden? Uh, right uh, in Genesis 2.6, um, the mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Verse 9, uh, out of the ground, Yahweh God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight, good for food, and the tree of life in the middle. Uh, I mean, this remarkable uh, situation with just delightful things. Hey, that's nice to look at. That's really nice to eat. Taste buds to enjoy it. Um, and it was just wonderful. All of this from the Lord. Uh, just a gracious provision. There's also no rain, so there was that tournament that I, I don't know if it created the perfect climate to protect them, but I know that was gone after the flood. So there was that there. Yeah. Idyllic environment. Like New Zealand all the time, or whatever you imagine. I've never been there, so I think it's perfect. Okay, what else do we know about the universe? And specifically, the, the universe's relationship to God. Okay, it wasn't groaning. And we know this by the contrast. Romans 8 tells us that all creation groans, longing for Thomas Boston's fourth state of man. Uh, creation literally, or metaphorically, I shouldn't say literally, uh, cranes the neck, uh, peering around the corner, waiting to see what the universe is going to look like when the groaning is over, when the subjection to futility and the slavery to corruption is done. Um, The garden was like that. No slavery to corruption. 
no groaning. Uh, Ecclesiastes 7 tells us that God has bent the universe and who can straighten it, right? So here in the first state of man, an unbent universe, no futility, right? No vanity as Ecclesiastes talks about it. Everything under the sun was glorious, wonderful, good, not cursed by God. That leads us to the relationship between humanity and work. What was, what was Adam and Eve's relationship to work in the first state of man? Oh, there was no work because work's part of the curse. No, no, work is not the result of the fall. Right? What was their relationship to work? Yeah, cultivate it, keep it, and it was only fun all the time. Right? Work was good. Work was enjoyment. Right? And, and, and we get flavors of that here in a cursed world. But you need to understand from Genesis 3, work stinks. And every job you've ever had and every job you will ever have stinks. Because it's cursed by God. It's been reprogrammed by God to not give the joys that work was originally designed to give. As God's subregent on God's earth, under God's sovereign care, to exercise stewardship in perfect goodness and selfless love. It's delightful work. And we can't have that anymore. Um, but by contrast... <laughs> Work in the garden was great and enjoyable. The difference between uh, me taking a shovel to my backyard and digging a hole and my son Emmett taking a shovel to the backyard and digging a hole. Uh, for him, it's play. For me, it's work. What's the difference? Same activity. <laughs> right? You understand the capacity that work has intrinsically to be delightful. And you know by experience the curse that work is under. Um, in the garden, work was only good all the time. What about man's relationship to sin? No sin. There was no sin. In, in fact, um, the way we would probably label this is Adam and Eve were in a state of being able to sin. They didn't sin, but then they did. But, but, but in that time period, when they didn't sin, um, they were able to. And that's going to be different than what happens in the next phase. Um, by the way, we, the text doesn't tell us how long Adam and Eve were in the garden. Right? You're like, it looks like about a paragraph. Um, <laughs> maybe a verse. I don't know. Um, Adam has time to meet his wife, sing her a song. You know, they, they get the commands from God to multiply and fill the earth. They obviously didn't do that. So... It wasn't very long. We can't imagine that it was thousands of years in the Garden of Eden because they would have been disobedient in not filling the earth and putting the kibosh on the universe. Um, so they would have sinned in another way. So it seems like a short period of time. I don't know if they got a week or an hour or what it is. Um, but in that time period, they were only able to sin, which is different than what we'll see in the next panel. So... Um, this next uh, phase of man we'll call unregenerate man. And this is the first panel in your trifold blue um, brochure. And does everybody have one? Okay, 
Okay, you've got the notes. Yeah, yeah let's, let's grab Soul one of those. Thank you. Thank you. There's some. So the, the first panel you see there is, is unregenerate man. And, and again, this, this notebook is about you. And, and you were here. right? None of us were here. But, but all of us have been here at this phase we're going to talk about. And, and maybe today some of you still are. And so we need to think about what, what is this phase like. And this line right here is a monumental event. This is a, a monumental event uh, of tragedy of infinite proportions. Because the, the watershed that this event is right here, to, to get humanity from this panel to this panel, has consequences that last into eternity. And, and it has consequences that have effects both at the cross and in the lake of fire of infinite proportion. This is so serious. This brings death into the world. It brings a natural inbred corruption to all of humanity. So that what Adam and Eve did by choice, now all of humanity does by nature. And, and this, of course, is the fall of the fall of humanity. In Adam all die, Paul said. This is a staggering event. And, and it's an event we, we, we don't really get the, the, the consequence of and the nature of without a contrast to this first state of man. And for me, what Thomas Boston's book did was uh, elevate what man is by birth, and I mean by original birth in Genesis, what, what were Adam and Eve, what was God's design for man in the beginning? Uh, Psalm 8 is your commentary on humanity in this phase. And I just encourage you to go read. That's the, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Right? Um, and, and that you would look upon little old me. But you created man great. And Psalm 8 is the commentary on Genesis and the creation of man. It's worth going back and looking at. Because what we see here is the greatness of man. And we see as we move to the next panel, the tragedy of squandered opportunity. And the tragedy is magnified by our understanding of the greatness of the original product. During World War II, we had a difficult time uh, supplying Europe with the supplies that were needed. Uh, the, in, in Europe, the, the Brits were alone. Uh, we weren't in the war until December 7, 1941. Right? Pearl Harbor, we were bombed and brought into the war. Um, our uh, production machinery was working. We were slow on the uptake of defending countries as they were picked off one by one by the Axis powers, and we didn't go to their aid when we should have. Uh, we were in an isolationist political climate uh, and we didn't see the dangers coming. Um, Winston Churchill did and fought nearly alone even in his own country to preserve Western civilization. But eventually we started sending supplies and we ran into the problem of the German U-boats, the submarines, that would sink our ships as we sent oil and gas and tanks and 
planes and ammunition uh, over to Europe. And many, many thousands lost their lives, and lots of supplies were lost, and we needed a solution to the U-boat problem. And, a, and an ingenious inventor came up with a solution. Listen, U-boats can't shoot down airplanes. Let's just fly tanks over. Right? And in 2018, that's an easy solution. You get a C-5 Galaxy, put a bunch of tanks and Jeeps and people in there, and just take it over, and it takes about eight hours. Um, but back then, that was an impossible feat. You, you may as well colonize Mars. Fly a tank over, what are you talking about? That's crazy. And, and this genius entrepreneur, uh, businessman, pilot, uh, inventor, uh, by the way, he's he's the he's the man that invented the flush rivet. Sorry, it's me, so you're going to get airplanes. <laughs> but every time I get on an airplane, uh, you know, you you walk down that that uh, tunnel that looks like folded up diapers. Um, <laughs> for you. Um, and, and you go into the to the doorway of the airplane. I always touch the outside of the airplane and run my hand along the smooth skin, and I just remember the flush rivet. Um, and and the, the, the way aluminum aircraft skins are put together is with a, a, a soft aluminum, um, almost looks like a cross between a bullet and a stubby nail. Mm -hmm. And you hammer it with a pneumatic gun and a, a bucking bar. <laughs> and, and it smashes that thing and sandwiches the two aluminum skins together. It's how you put an airplane together. Um, and, and it's a bumpy thing. Well, he's, he thought if we countersink the hole and make the rivet head flush and make the whole skin smooth, I think we can make the airplane go faster. Well, immediately the airplanes he, were, he was flying went 100 miles an hour faster and he broke all the speed records. This guy's just a genius. So every time I get on an airplane, I'm like, ooh, the flush rivet. <laughs> <laughs> and so this guy's the one that said, hey, let, let's make an airplane that can fly tanks over Europe. And, and he was the guy to do it. And he built it. And it never flew one tank. The HK-1 Hercules. It's Howard Hughes. Who said it? Yeah, it's Howard Hughes. And, and the airplane, a, a total waste of all of its brilliance. Because maybe it flew, maybe it didn't, and the stories are, are debatable. Uh, in Long Beach Harbor, did, did he get off the ground? Did he get off the water? Um, 300 yards, maybe? And, and the news reporters debate whether it really flew or whether it was just in ground effect over the water. Um, but I, I think he was proving to the world that it could fly. And because of his own eccentricities, the government didn't take up the contract. And forever, the Spruce Goose, the other name for the HK-1 Hercules, um, sat in an air-conditioned um, preservation hangar in Long Beach, um, always kept at ready-to-fly condition by his endowment. What a waste. Anybody ever go see the Spruce Goose movie? Okay. Is it now like up in Oregon or Washington Oregon. State or something? It's in Oregon. Um, still ready to fly. The engine's still operational. Um, everything up to spec, and it'll never, it'll never fly. And it, and it never played its part in the design for which it was made to, to help save Europe in a dark hour in World War II. And the airplane is like the man. Because Howard Hughes himself, for all of his genius, for all of his skills, for all of his enterprising abilities, lived most of the end of his life as a recluse in his home, afraid of everything. What a waste. Not to mention just a waste of life not glorifying God.
It is a picture of humanity. All of the skills, all of the abilities, all of the opportunities, <laughs> communicative ability, um, the, all the resources. You think about the smartest people we know now. What do you think Adam and Eve were like? We tend to think of ancient people as dumb. That's wrong. We're dumb. The human genome is going the other way. We've got problems. Um, man in his original formation was glorious. And the fall of man is the tragedy of the squandering of all of that. You come to the second panel, what is man's relationship to God? Man was built in God's image to be a reflection of his glory, to fill the earth with, with God's likeness, his stamp, his imprint, so that all of the universe can see a, a semblance of God through the sub-regent of God on God's earth. And now what is man's relationship to God? <coughs> Not peace, but what? Enmity, war, hostility of mind, hostility of action, rebellion, throwing our fist in God's face. We don't love what God loves. We actually love what God hates. We provoke wrath in God. Romans 2 says you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. Jonathan Edwards portrayed that Romans 2 passage like this, like the, the mercy of God is like a dam holding back a large lake of water, and we're underneath at the bottom end of that dam, throwing more water behind the dam, just provoking God's anger, when one day that will all be released. We just hate God. We do the things that provoke his anger. What about man's relationship to man? What's that one? What was it? At war. Yeah, at war. More hostility, sin, Anger, hatred. Um, and, and, and Jesus tells us that the, all of those evil, wicked things are, are not the product of your environment. As if your little sister made you do it, or the devil made you do it, or it's just the way you were brought up. Uh, no, it's much deeper than that. The problem is much deeper than that. The result of the fall is that now we are not just able to sin we are unable to not sin and what Adam and Eve did by choice we do by nature it is our very nature to sin to sin against God to sin against others and now what is the relationship of mankind to the universe to the world around us what is it? Hurtful? Yeah, it's hurtful. We, we're, we're harmful to our environment. And our environment is hostile to us. Right? Genesis 3, the, the curse um, says there's going to be uh, pain in childbearing. There's going to be pain in work. Right? One of the older translations says, Out of the ground, or uh, by the sweat of your face, Adam, you will eat bread out the ground. Thorns and thistles the ground will produce for you. What do they used to produce? Lush vegetation, every kind of fruit, every kind of, I mean, just growing things that were a delight to look at and a delight to eat. Now, um, go raise some corn, and you're going to have to fight the weeds and the bees. Listen, the universe is full of things that are now hostile to man. Mosquitoes, mayonnaise, the whole list. <laughs> 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 Uh, 
Um, the, the universe is now broken. The second law of thermodynamics is in place. Things rust and fall apart. Um, I've only been in my house uh, about nine years. And somewhere in the early years, I, built, I had some project in the backyard where I used some um, stainless steel screws. Stainless steel screws are not supposed to rust. Well, I was digging through the dirt just this last year, and I found not the screw, but a rusty imprint in the dirt of what used to be a stainless steel screw. Things fall apart. Um, the, the world is broken. And the world is broken at every level. Animals die. People die. Metal rusts. Things fall apart. And the world is cursed. Again, the Lord has bent it. Who can straighten it? Psalm says in Ecclesiastes 7. What is the relationship of man to work? Work is cursed. Work stinks. Sweat. Sweat, weeds, thorns. Listen, the grass is not greener on the other side of your next job interview. <laughs> that one stinks too. Everything has changed. Um, and, and now for the unbeliever, the Bible says that that, that man is a slave of sin. That that man actually loves sin. Consider John 3, 19 to 21. What is God's indictment? That men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. In other words, sin is not just what you do, but it's what you love. And we're committed to sin. We, we actually love darkness rather than light. And when light stepped into our world, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the incarnation, 100% God became 100% man. Um, we didn't like it. That's God's indictment of man. God's assessment of our condition. And we get this in a lot of different places, right? Genesis 6-5. Somebody look that up and read that for us. And then uh, I need another volunteer to get Genesis 8-21. And then Jeremiah 17-9. First come, first serve. Okay. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Is, is that really true? I mean, uh, I helped a little old lady cross the street the other day. Isn't that good? Um, how does relative goodness fit into this overarching indictment from God that everything man does is always evil all the time? Any thoughts on that? Have you ever thought about that question? The Bible says there's no one good, not even one. And but I mean, aren't some people better than others? And when a Marine jumps on a grenade to save his buddies, isn't that good? When, when, when people storm the beaches of Normandy and, and give their own blood so the rest of us can live free, isn't that good? There's no one good? Is, is the Bible really true? It goes against my experience. Have you thought about that question? What's the answer? God's common grace. Okay. Yeah. This is no, uh, you know, absolving of man's depravity, but it is the kindness of the Lord to not let us go our own way 100% all the time. And listen, that day's coming. Jesus said in Matthew 24 and 25, during the Great Tribulation, 
Uh, mothers will hate their daughters, daughters their mothers. In other words, every close human relationship will break down worldwide. So that the things we could count on for the relative goodness of man actually evaporate. Total worldwide anarchy and evil so that men are allowed to be as evil as they would be naturally. It's God's common grace that we're not there yet. In fact, Paul tells the Thessalonian believers that there is a restrainer in place. And when he is removed, right, you can kind of get an idea who, if there is a restrainer and then it's a he, we're probably not talking about a thing, but a person, right? And, and when he, the restrainer, is removed, watch out. Watch out. Just the part you're talking about that in the book Jihad, remember there was a small town in Poland, and instead of going in and wiping out the Jewish population, um, they just removed the law of there would be no consequences. You could do whatever you wanted to your Jewish neighbor. Instead of just stealing, they actually murdered them and took all their yep. things. Yep. It was. Yep. I'll give you three books on this theme um, written by unbelievers who know this is the problem. That, that, that banish the idea that relative goodness absolves us from the Bible's indictment. Number one is Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, 1901, um, written in a time when humanity thought, hey, we're on the evolutionary upswing. Uh, we're doing great. Man's great. Look how civilized we are. Um, civilized Western Europe um, was raping the Congo, murdering in genocidal warfare entire people groups for ivory. And they were doing the same thing with the Aborigines in Australia and a bunch of other places in the world. Um, this is late European colonialism, right? Oh, we're, we're so civilized, we've abolished slavery. Uh, what are you doing in Africa? Worse than slavery? Europe? Height of the industrialization um, and, and, and German, or, uh, German newspaper headlines in the late 1800s were talking about a superior race and the benefits of Darwinian evolutionary thought on the supremacy of the white race over and against all others. Hey, the strongest survived. Darwin said it. We believe it. We're just living it out. Those were newspaper headlines and scientific journals in Europe in the late 1800s. Mixed with this optimism of we're so great. Listen, Adolf Hitler was not born in a vacuum. He was practicing what German uh, sociologists and anthropologists uh, and, and, and uh, philosophers taught a generation before him. Joseph Conrad picks this up and, and writes the book Heart of Darkness. And, and English uh, you know, explorers uh, going up the Congo River in Africa... And they're the civilized and they're going to the savages and they're going to bring the light of civilization to the savages. They realize uh, when they get there, oh my goodness, I'm the savage. And the heart of darkness is not the heart of the dark African continent. The heart of darkness is me. And Joseph Conrad's book is popular, number one, because English was his fourth language and he's better at English than anybody I know. And it's a brilliant, you know, hundred page book that indicts the human race from the uh, environment of an optimism that says, hey, we're all good. Look at relative goodness. And he blows it apart. Right? The other book in the same era is William Golding's Lord of the Flies. What do those British prep school boys do when they get on an island by themselves and the laws of civilization have been stripped away? They kill each other for a seashell. Murderous beasts. 
And, and the enemy in that book is not a pig's head, you know, in a swarm of flies that's really scary. Um, what's the enemy? It's the human heart. And, and whatever relative goodness you could have pointed to in these kids. Oh, look, they mind their P's and Q's. Uh, they do their multiplication tables. They obey their teachers. They wear school uniforms. Oh, they're great. Isn't humanity great? We're so civilized. It all gets stripped away. And then the third book I would have mentioned is just what you said. The book is called Neighbors. And it is the story of the Germans going into Poland and they found some interesting ways to eradicate Jews. Uh, they could line them all up and shoot them. Um, they could go house to house and look for Jews and try to figure out who's who. But instead they went to the Polish people and said, hey, listen, um, if you turn in Jews, um, you can have their stuff. That nine foot grand piano you've been coveting that your neighbor owned, that's yours. Just turn them in. And they did. Entire towns turned in their mailman and piano teacher and sixth grade teacher. <laughs> Relative goodness is a sham. And you think, well, well, but, but, but wait a second. I mean, a guy's not as bad as he could be. Well, Adolf Hitler took good care of his dogs. It was widely known that he treated his dogs, and listen to the word that's used, humanely. Do you, do you mean caninely? Right? What do you mean he treated his dogs humanely? Well, better than he treated six and a half million Jews. And a hundred million casualties of World War II. Um, we have a wrong view upside down of right and wrong. Even the, the kind-hearted man that helps the little old lady across the street, if he does not do it on the basis of the first and greatest commandment, Old Testament, New Testament, is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. New Testament adds strength. Listen, is he doing it for the glory of God? The glory of self? To salve his conscience? To tell himself, you're a good man? To actually tell himself a lie against God's indictment. It's actually evil. Paul knew that. Philippians 3, when he looks back on his pre-Christian days, he said, all of my achievements, all of my status, all of my heritage, Philippians 3, it's trash. And I've exchanged all of it for Christ. <laughs> Man in this panel is unable not to sin, even on his best days. It's just who we are. We're slaves of sin. Uh, that's what's going on here. And, and so we see the, the massive difference between the first state of man and the second state of man. Uh, by the way, the older theologians, um, we're on, on our panel and, and in here we talk about um, condition being mixed or unmixed, right? In the first panel, is this a mixed or unmixed condition? Unmixed, right? Unmixed holiness, unmixed bliss, beautiful relationship with God, with each other, with our world. Um, what about this panel? Mixed or unmixed condition? Unmixed, right? Unable to not sin. Slaves of sin. There's no war going on inside. Um, th there is a battle with conscience. That's a, a slightly separate issue. Um, but in terms of um, who man is constitutionally, he's unmixed. The older theologians, rather than using mixed, unmixed condition, use the, the um, labels nature, right? And here... Man had one nature. Okay? Here, man has one nature. Right? 
And, and when we get to this panel over here, our mixed condition, um, we're going to talk about two natures. Okay. Um, what happens between panel one and panel two is a fundamental change brought about by the fall of man. And I went, oh, we didn't, we didn't go to the next verse. I've just been talking and talking. Uh, where are we at? Jer uh, oh, Genesis 8.21, right? Did the flood fix Genesis 6.5? Who's got it? And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Okay, so God promises not to destroy the world again by a flood. Next time it's by fire. But not again by flood. Um, and there's only eight people alive on the earth, right? Noah, Noah's wife, three sons, their wives, eight people floating on a box over the waves. Everybody else is dead. And it didn't solve Genesis 6-5. Because God's indictment against those eight people was the intentions of their hearts are evil. Right. Um, what ad, what the what the fall brought about um, was a condition that cannot be changed by anything other than a monumental event like death brought about. What we need is a monumental event to get to the next panel. Okay. And then I gave out one more verse, Jeremiah seventeen nine. Okay. So. Uh, just make a mental list of deceitful things. Go ahead. Think of what what is the most deceitful thing you can think of, um, and now put the human heart above it. That's Jeremiah seventeen nine. Um, it's a fundamental problem at the heart level, at the constitutional level, at the nature level of humanity in this panel. And so, everybody, turn to uh, Romans chapter five. Look at verse 12. And I'll, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you my translation of verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world. Who's that one man? Adam, right? This is the transition from first panel to second panel. Uh, just as through one man sin entered the world. And death through sin. That is, death entered the world through Adam's sin. And so death spread to all men. Okay, number one, because there aren't any humans that weren't born from Adam's line. Right? So we have here a, a hint at, oh, this is genetic. Right? Sin came into the world not through the genes, but through Adam's decision, through his choice. But to all the rest of humanity, um, it spreads genetically. And then the last phrase, on account of which all sinned. That is, on account of the fact that death spread to all men, therefore everybody sinned. Now, I know that's different than what you're looking at in your English translations. Um, for the background on that, go back and listen to Scott Maxwell's sermon on Romans 5.12. He takes an entire 53 minutes or so um, to discuss why every English translation is wrong and why you should trust Scott Maxwell. He, he's right. And, and he's not the only one that believes it. 
Um, and, and this is a critical issue. Uh, and, and there's a lot more to say about that than, than can be said right now. But you need to understand that death, the whole idea of death, physical demise and spiritual death, producing the enmity against God and, and the enmity with each other and the brokenness of our world and our universe, the groaning condition and our sinfulness by nature. All of that, all of that is death having come. Physical death, spiritual death. And because everybody is spiritually dead, what do spiritually dead people do but sin? You can't do the life stuff. You can't do the God-pleasing stuff. This is exactly in line with what Paul says in Ephesians 2. Right? We are all spiritually dead, and therefore we sin. Um, so what Romans 5.12 describes is this monumental event, but Romans 5 goes on to describe a monumentaler event. <laughs> right? Romans 5 is all about the superiority of the work of Christ over and against the unbelievable work of Adam. And what Jesus did is powerfuler, bigger, better, gloriouser, all the errs you could add. It is superior in every way. Um, to what Adam did. And, and if you're reading Romans 5 and you see in Romans 5.12 the just as. That's a clue that you're looking for a second half of the sentence. Um, just as something. Uh, even so something else. And, and you read and you read and you read these Pauline digressions. And you're like I don't see it. Well it doesn't show up until verse 19. So you might in your Bible if, if you're a circler or an underline, underliner. Um, if you circle that just as in verse 12, um, circle the even so in verse 19. That's where Paul picks up the second half of the sentence. Just as through one man sin entered the world, death entered through sin, and so death spread to all men, and on account of death spreading to all men, all sinned. Just as that, Paul, couldn't you have made it a simpler sentence? Just as that, verse 19, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. So in verse 19, Paul helps by picking up the idea of verse 12 again. He says, through the one man's disobedience. There, we're back to the idea of verse 12. Through Adam's sin, the many were made or constituted or placed into the category of sinners. Just as that was true, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be placed into the category of or constituted as righteous. So uh, the, the, the unbelievable, tragic, monumental event that gets us from panel one to panel two is undone, overtaken, overwhelmed by this event <laughs> um, to get us to panel three. And so panel three is the middle panel in the blue brochure. Regenerate man. And and the as you're looking at the chart, you have this page called the regeneration event. Right? Those blue columns or the page in your notes that's all the kind of blue and tan. Um, that's an event. In in other words, it's a it's a moment in time, once and for all time thing that happens. Right? It, it's hard to make that show up in a chart because it's just a dot. But in that dot is a whole lot of stuff, big theological words that make all the difference in the world. 
things like adoption. Adoption. You were born in the wrong family. You were born in the bad panel. And by God's gracious choice of adoption, you were brought into his family, into a family you don't belong, don't deserve to be in, and you become an inheritor of God's riches, his treasures, a participant in his family so that you can cry out, Daddy, and so that he calls you son, daughter, beloved. What a staggering thing. You look down at that uh, brown and tan chart on the regeneration event. Just You can cheat. You can look at your notes. Um, what other events happen there in, in, in this space right here between uh, one, one panel and the other? Okay. The doctrine of justification. Justification. Where, where you and I are credited with God's righteousness. Right? In this event, you get a new status. And that status is you've never sinned and you've always done everything right. And you think, wait a second, that, that's not what's true in my life. Granted, we'll get to what's true practically in your life. But we're talking about status. Status in God's courtroom. A declaration of righteousness. By the way, the Roman Catholic Church defines justification as being made righteous. That is fundamentally wrong and anti-gospel, and it is the heart of the whole problem. In fact, when Martin Luther finally discovered the Greek New Testament and discovered the Greek verb dikaiao, which means a declaration of righteousness, a forensic declaration in a courtroom of a legal status of perfect, it meant all of a sudden, oh, you mean God's standard of perfection, which used to haunt me? I hated God's righteousness, Luther said. But now God gives me his righteousness as a gift? By his grace, through faith alone, oh, changes everything. And, and it changed the world in the 1500s. That rediscovery. And, and it was difficult in the Latin Bible that everybody was using. The Latin Bible didn't have a way to differentiate between being made righteous and being declared righteous. But that difference is the gospel. Now, we'll talk about being made righteous. Right? Everybody who gets declared righteous will be made righteous. But the gospel is not in being made righteous. The gospel is, being in, is in being declared righteous. Right? This is on my license plate, Romans 4, 5. To the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Okay? What else is in this regeneration event? Regeneration. It's great. Yeah, new birth. That's what that word means. Being born again. Jesus said you must be born again. You can't get to heaven unless you're born again. Listen, all of us were born in this panel. Born once, die twice. First death, second death. Born twice, die once. Unless you're raptured. Then maybe zero. <laughs> yeah, you got to be born again. And, and regeneration is a once-for-all time event that cannot be undone that gets us from that panel to that panel. Okay, what else happens? Propitiation, right? This gets us right to the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is right here between these two panels. As Romans 5 declares, the obedience of the one that is Jesus obeying the Father by going to the cross and dying in sinner's place is the monumental event between this one and that one. And propitiation is that uh, wonderful theological word. It shows up four times in the New Testament, and it only ever always means 
a satisfaction of divine wrath by a substitute. God has been propitiated. That is, his anger has been assuaged. His wrath has been swallowed up by the work of a substitute in the sinner's place. Propitiation. One-time event, once for all, uh, for the believer, cannot ever be undone. What else? Okay, repentance. Okay, repentance is what we do that God produces. Paul prayed, Paul prayed in Acts that the Gentiles might receive repentance from God. You know, we don't believe that faith is self-produced. Listen, what can someone in this panel produce that pleases God? Nothing. But regeneration produces a whole new palette of activities. And the one-time initiating activity of us that is produced by God's new birth process is something called repentance and faith. They're two sides of the same coin. I positively believe in Jesus Christ and I'm turning my back on everything else. 180 degree turn from who I was and what I did and I'm turning towards Jesus Christ. Um, you go to Russia and you interact with believers. Um, what do we call Christians here? Oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I became a Christian or I believed. Um, tell me, when did God save you? We talk about being saved. Uh, in Russia, uh, they talk about repenters. When did you repent? Oh yeah, he's, he's a repenter. Meaning he repented to get into the Christian life and part of the Christian life is this ongoing process of repentance. So there's a one-time regenerating, regeneration-producing repentance that brings you to Christ. And then there's a life of progressive repentance that we'll talk about in a second. There are other things on that regeneration event. Anything else you want to highlight? Anything precious to you you want to bring up? What is it? Union. Yeah, union with Christ. You are now placed in Christ. Um, I wrote a little note in Ephesians in, in my Bible here in a very small font. Um, this phrase, in Christ or in Him or in the Lord, occurs 35 times in the book of Ephesians alone. Uh, a precious doctrine in the New Testament. Your in Christness is a new status. We are in Him. And, and that comes by this event. So these monumental events, uh, founded on the cross work of Jesus Christ, produced by the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration, <laughs> that makes a dead man live, brings us to this center panel in the, in the blue folder. Or Thomas Boston's third state of man, regenerate man. Okay. And, and, and this is where the rubber meets the road. This is, you know, you're, you're at the mall and you're looking for the map and you're looking for the little X that says you are here. Um, maybe you, uh, that's what I do. I go to the map. Where am I? Um, do you know that d department stores are architecturally designed to keep you in? <laughs> you believe it. Now, this comes from the perspective of someone who desperately wants to get out. So... You are here. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and these regeneration events have happened to you, in you, um, then God has graciously placed you in this panel. And, and we call this the mixed condition. And we haven't seen one of these before. Adam and Eve were unmixed in the garden. You were unmixed in your rebellion against God and the situation you were born in until you believed. 
Um, but, but now something new is in place. And this is a mixed condition because God hasn't seen fit to save you and then have you get hit by a bus. <laughs> but to leave you here on this earth, not with one nature, but with two. And what you brought into this panel was you. And, and we'll call this residual depravity. And listen, total depravity still applies over here in your mixed condition. Total depravity when you were over here never meant you did everything bad you possibly could have done. I mean, listen, if Adolf Hitler had tortured his dogs, pulled a Mike Vick, um, and, you know, whatever, been cruel to animals, he'd be punished in hell for those things in addition to all the other things. But he wasn't as bad as he could have been. Do you understand? Um, total depravity doesn't mean you're as bad as you could have been. What total depravity did mean is that every aspect of your constitutional nature was affected by sin. Behavior, thoughts, feelings, will, all of it was broken and bent by sin. All of it was contaminated, right? Um, that's still true here. Total depravity still applies in terms of every aspect of who you are is still affected by sin because the mixed condition doesn't come by replacement. And this is critical. If you hear one thing this morning, this is probably it. Your mixed condition comes by addition. Your mixed condition comes by addition. This goes back to the question, hey, if I have a new heart from God, um, why do I have to shepherd it? You don't see me shepherding God. Um, you know, what, does Jeremiah 17, 9 still apply? Genesis 6, 5 still apply? Um, it, what do I do with sin? I mean, if I have a new heart, if I'm a, a new creature, then when I sin, something else has to be blamed than my heart. Now I can blame my little sister, right? Now I can blame Satan. Now I can blame the world. And it's true that my little sister sins and Satan's evil and the world's bad. I, I grant all of those things. But Jesus was here with a perfect heart and was not induced to sin by any of those factors. But you and I are. Because my little sister, I'm quit picking on my sister, she's great. Um, my environment, other people I might cast blame on, Satan himself who wants to devour Christians, um, and the world that is always trying to squeeze us into its mold. Right? The, the, the Westminster Confession said the Christian has three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The flesh is that residual depravity that you brought into the Christian life that God hasn't seen fit yet to eradicate. He's going to eradicate it by degrees until you gloriously get hit by that bus. Which is a good day, right? The mixed condition um, helps us long for the last panel Right? Um, being sinless isn't the only reason to look forward to heaven. As if heaven is the place where we all walk around with a blank slate going, look at my blank slate. And look at your blank slate. Look, I'm, I don't sin anymore. Look at me. That, that's not the point. Your sinless status, and it's better than a blank slate, right? You're actually credited positively with God's righteousness. Um, and, and, and God's crediting of his righteousness to your account and his removal as far as the east as the west from your sins so that it doesn't even exist anymore 
all of that simply qualifies you for, for being in his glorious presence without being incinerated. Right? The, the, the good news of the gospel is not that you get your sins forgiven. The good news of the gospel is you got your sins forgiven so that you get God. So that you get to be in his presence and delight in him. Delight in the universe that he made and delight in the purpose for which you were created. Um, sinlessness qualifies you for that. Um, but we're not there yet. And I don't know if you've ever struggled with this. God, if you hate sin and you love me, why did you leave us together? Why am I in this relationship? I don't know the total answer for that question, but I'll give you a couple theological categories. Romans 8.28, right? What does Romans 8.28 say? Exactly. Whoever said that, whatever you said, it was probably right. <laughs> right? All things for good. That, that includes sin. Um, I don't know how that exactly works, and this is not an endorsement of sin. But I do know that when God can make your enemies bow at your feet to produce eternal weight of glory, he's more powerful. He's stronger. He loves you. And he uses evil to accomplish good. He's always done that. Now, the cross was the most evil thing ever perpetrated, and God used it for our infinite and eternal good and his glory. Um, you know, Genesis fifty twenty is the Old Testament version of Romans eight twenty eight. Do you know it? Joseph said to his brothers, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Direct object is the same. What's the it? Well, you told dad I was dead. You threw me in a hole and you sold me into slavery. And you wanted to kill me. God meant that for good. Romans 8.28, New Testament version. Same thing. God causes all things to work together for good. Um, think about the thief on the cross for a moment. Um, the thief on the cross goes from insurrectionist, rebellion, uh, murderous thief probably what he was hanging for and he, he mocks jesus after meeting jesus for the first time and then believes and is in heaven he had a very short christian life <laughs> and there was fruit right um but he goes from thinking about sin categories and the glory of god categories as man i stole some stuff and i killed a guy um, I think that's bad. I think that's why I'm hanging here. And uh, maybe he can save me. I, I think he's the Messiah. You're the Messiah. I'll be with you in paradise. Whoa! How'd I get here? I just stole some stuff. And, and, and what have you been doing your whole Christian life? You haven't, you haven't been saying, oh, I stole some stuff and incidentally a guy died while I, I tried taking his stuff. You're, you haven't been saying things like that. You've been saying, oh my goodness, I was impatient with my kids one more time. Oh, the wickedness of my heart. Because my motivation was I want what I wanted when I wanted it and my precious little kids weren't letting me have it and I took it out on them. This grieves the Lord. And it actually interferes with the love that I have for my kids. Oh, I'm the worst. I am the worst. First Timothy 1, Paul said he was the chief of sinners. I know he's wrong. I know it's me. You, you've said those things. You've worked through those things in your heart. And you've come back to the cross and you've said, Oh, my Savior had to pay for those things. Had to become those things on my behalf. 
And, and you've dug up the heart motivations underneath the outward behavior. And, and you know the vileness of your heart. And that's brought you to deeper worship. I guarantee you, you'll sing louder on the first day of heaven than the thief on the cross did. Because you've understood your sin more deeply. And you've loved your Savior better. Listen, if you're not doing that with your sin, you're missing out on the benefit of sinning. You're going to sin, so get the most out of it. Go, go to the cross. Worship your Savior. See what He did. Run to 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on my behalf that I might become the righteousness of God in Him. Insert your name and insert your sin. God made Jesus who knew no impatient, unloving parenting that, that, that was self-absorbed. Jesus knew none of that. He, he didn't know what it was like to do that. And he became that on Smedley's behalf. So that Smedley might become the righteousness of God in Jesus. And, and, and you rehearse these things. And, and you actually see some of the good that God intends. Even out of evil. So, you know, in, in one sense, um, why, why do I shepherd my heart in, in this panel? Well, because I, 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 I have two natures now, meaning I have things that God provided that I didn't have over here. So for the first time, I can shepherd my heart. I can drag my sorry self before the word of God and be changed by it and meet with him and enjoy him. I can actually experience for the first time what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And, and this one's on your um, chart. And this is probably the theme verse for progressive sanctification in this panel. I can't, I don't know what book, what book is this? Second Corinthians. Have to find it. Second Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled face, we've have our face uncovered, the, the, the truths of God's uh, word have been revealed to us. We are beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord and we are being transformed into that same image from one glory to another by the Lord, the Spirit. In other words, in this panel, the Holy Spirit indwells you and is transforming you bit by bit. You are being made righteous. Here in this event, we're declared righteous. Here in this event, we're actually being transformed. Not finished in this life but from one glory to another into the image of the Lord. And so we shepherd our hearts here because it's actually possible. Because we can. The, the, the two natures, meaning the, the new heart from the Lord added to the old stuff that we were, makes us a new creature. And you have capacities, abilities, desires that you never had before. And so we shepherd our hearts because we can. But the residual depravity that's part of the mixed condition means we shepherd our hearts because we must. <laughs> Listen, the, 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 the new things that God has given you give you weapons against what you've brought into this situation. And you're still the enemy. And Jeremiah 17, 9 still applies. Your heart is still deceptive. And if you don't believe that, you've been deceived by your deceptive heart that's more deceptive than you recognize Genesis 6, 5, the, the intentions of the thoughts of the heart are evil. Still applies. 
Now I've got new things, new categories, new abilities, new desires. I need to do battle with those things. And you ever think about um, the book of Proverbs? Trust in the Lord, the command. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not what? Don't trust yourself. You can't trust you. Follow your heart. Believe in yourself. All that Disney garbage. Throw it away. You're not trustworthy. The Lord is. The Lord's word is. You can't trust your feelings. They're a terrible guide. Um, even your conscience can be reprogrammed and rewritten. Jiminy Cricket was sort of right. <laughs> if your conscience is informed by the word of God, then he's right. Let conscience be your guide. Let the word of God inform you. Um, there's, a, there's a critical phrase in the New Testament that shows up several times. Two words. The Greek words are paleos, anthropos. Right? You, you know these words. Anthropology is the study of man. Anthropos is just the Greek word for man. Paleos, um, you know, right? Paleontology is the study of old things. Paleobiology is the study of life that's now extinct. Right? The paleo diet <laughs> is you're eating stale food, right? <laughs> what is a paleo diet? But you're eating like a caveman. The whole idea is eat like humanity used to and you'll, it'll be really good for you. No, you know what? They just ate what they found. Anyway, that's another story. My kids are on the paleo diet. What's on the ground? Sorry. But this whole idea of the paleos anthropos is the old man. The old man. And the old man is the unable to not sin, unmixed, one-natured enemy of God. The new man is a two-natured, mixed-conditioned, able to not sin. Able to not sin. Person. This is the new man, the kainos anthropos. Right? The paleos anthropos doesn't exist anymore. Let me give you three passages Romans 6, 6. Colossians 3, 9 to 10. And Ephesians 4, 22 to 24. Ephesians 4, 22 to 24. Those are the three places the, the, this phrase shows up. And it just means that that state is done and gone when you come through the cross. Um, the new man, two natures, mixed condition. The last panel is heaven. Four minutes for questions. Go. <laughs> no, no, the paleos anthropos is gone. The paleos anthropos is this whole panel. That's gone. Okay. What's here is residual depravity and a sin nature. Right? Um, what's true about this panel? A sin nature and a real human and an image bearer and two legs, two eyes, two ears. There's lots of similarities. And you, your history, your personality, your genetic coding, all that stuff. There are a lot of things that carry over.
but a but a but a sin sinful man with one nature. That guy's gone. He's been put to death. Okay, um, the new man has a lot of the same features: a sin nature, two eyes, two ears, genetic coding. Uh, what else do we say over there? Still an image bearer, although that image is being renewed day by day in the greater conformity with Christ. But it's a sin nature plus a new nature. The new man is a two-natured man. The old man, who no longer exists, is a one-natured, unmixed man. Does that make sense? When you call that parent of the property, that that was something of the Sorry. Greek letters. Kainos. Kainos anthropos. Just means new. Not like some secret Greek word. Just means new. I know. Through the cross. Yes. From unregenerate to regenerate. Could you spend just a little bit of time on exactly what that means? Okay. Um, (laughs) New birth by the Holy Spirit is always accompanied by. In fact, the, the Holy Spirit produces faith in the cross work of Jesus Christ. Can't get there any other way. There's no other name given un, unto have, under heaven by men by which they must be saved. Right? Um, you can't get from this panel to that panel without, number one, Jesus paying for your sins. And number two, you, you believing, entrusting yourself to his work. Is that what you're after? Great. Thank you. Um, you describe the um, uh, the original state uh, as by choice and the unregenerate man as by nature. Mm-hmm. Do you have a phrase for regenerate? Uh, the regenerate man? Um, yeah, actually, we sin and we not sin by nature and by choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, both are true. I have never thought of it that way, Ingrid. That's really helpful. Thank you. Um, the last category here in relationship to sin, not able to sin. That's a good day. I, um, when Scott taught on Romans 7, I was so confused. But you said 10, and I just, so I, verse 18, Romans seven eighteen. Mm-hmm. for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, mm-hmm. for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So Paul is talking as an unbeliever. unbeliever. It, yeah. Because he didn't have the ability. And when you said regenerate meant it's a can, you mm-hmm. have to have the ability yeah. to make a joke. It's very clear now. I'm so glad. You. you cannot use Paul's language in Romans 7 to describe this panel. You can't. But the, the Romans 7 guy is a slave to sin who can't do what's right. That's that panel. Thank you. That's, that's really helpful. Well, I was looking at MacArthur's book. Someone had recommended um, uh, No uh, uh, Safe Without Doubt. Yeah. And I just started reading the beginning, and he used his right. Romans 7. Right. And I thought, does Everybody that does. The entire book? Everybody. Well, here's. and he, No. Okay. No, but just use caution. Um, Romans 7. Um, most people, most evangelical commentators go to Romans 7 because the language here describes what I feel sometimes. But what it does not describe is the actual objective truths of who the regenerate man is. 
it's just so clear now. Thank you so much. Good. Melissa? Yes, you've been... So, we had come in excavation, and even though Hebrews talked about Old Testament saints, that they were saved by faith, mm-hmm. saints, but were they still just stuck as unregenerate man in God? No, I, I'll give you a title. Larry Pettigrew, The New Covenant Ministry of the Holy Spirit, is a book that addresses the question, were Old Testament saints regenerate? Did they require new birth? And was the Holy Spirit involved in making them new? The answer to all those things is yes. Um, In fact, when Jesus is talking about new birth to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he says, Nicodemus, haven't you read Ezekiel? You should have known these things. Um, uh, The new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he has a chapter devoted to that topic. Um, What's different about the relationship of the Holy Spirit to believers in the New Testament is permanent indwelling. That's new. And Jesus said so in the upper room discourse. Okay, we are out of time. I'm so sorry. I meant to leave more time for questions. Your call, Jamie. What do you want to do? I'm not going to add any more to the panel, but if there was a pressing question. Okay. I saw another hand back here somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's right. Thank you, Sarah. Did everybody catch that? First Corinthians ten thirteen is a promise from God that no temptation uh, comes upon you that you're not able to bear. There's another statement of our ability in this panel to do what's right, to be pleasing to the Lord. That's good. Ten thirteen. Oh, and Romans six. Yeah, yeah. We have a new ability to present ourselves before God to be pleasing to Him. We're slaves of obedience, slaves of righteousness. Not two hearts, two natures. Yeah, the, and the only reason I say that is the Bible doesn't use the language of two hearts. The Bible only addresses you as a single uh, inner man. Um, but uh, the heart in the Bible is used to describe the way you think, the way you feel, and what you choose to do. You know, um, intellect, emotion, and will. Yeah, and 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 how and and what is your new heart? This is a this is a really good question. My old heart only had slavery and rebellion against God. What does my new heart have? My new heart has the stuff I brought to the mix in terms of residual depravity, and it also has new affections, desires, abilities, will. Good, good question. That it, again, the, the blue chart is an attempt to allow every passage of the Bible um, on humanity and our condition stand. And, and when this question was originally asked... Um, uh, Scott and I started talking. Okay, um, we drew up these little uh, egg diagrams on pencil um, in in three columns, and then Cassidy Thompson uh, put them in a in a like a nice little diagram, and then eventually they became the stick figures, and then the the chart that you see eventually there. And Jeff Kershaw did the layout. So I mean, there's a long progression, um, but the 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 question of um, we need to teach this. And, and Scott and I said, you know what, let's, let's, let's wait a year. Each of us were on a year-long Bible reading plan. Let's read through the entire Bible with this chart, um, the, the initial pencil drawing with eggs, um, hanging over our desks. And let's just make sure every single passage of the Bible fits this diagram. If it doesn't fit, we scrap it and draw something else. Um, so that, that's the attempt. Ingrid? Um, I, I, I want to like, separate... 
from flesh. But is is the flesh um, when there's nothing good dwelling in the flesh? Is that another word for sin? Tough, nature? tough word. Um, the word sarx is your word for flesh. Um, we get our word sarcophagus. Um, uh, the, it just means body. And like a lot of words, it can mean a lot of things depending on the context. So I've actually, um, I've got a, 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 a topical Bible reference list that I've made for the word sarks. Sometimes Jesus' fleshly body was called his sarks. Sometimes residual depravity. Paul uses sarks to describe residual depravity. And in homardiological context, that means context dealing with sin, that's often the meaning. But it can have this just general meaning about my body that's not sinful or whatever. So, passage by passage. It's like in that description, though, where it's describing our sin nature, is there condition of our heart in this conscious way? Yeah. Um, no. This is one of those homardiological contexts. That's a deeper question. If you want a technical article by George Zemeck on the word sarks in context like Romans 7, I can send that to you. So that, that's, a, that's a loaded one. Jamie? So to wrap it up, can you briefly, in light of what you just taught, how do we take this to our... Yeah. So we know, we know a little bit more about how we're to care for our hearts. Yep. How to shepherd our hearts. Yep. How do we apply this to stay disciplined to? Yeah, let's talk about our homes, our homes and we'll go beyond. That's great. Thank you. Um, if, if I've got people in my home, isn't it helpful to, to know what category they're in? Right? If, I, if I'm giving um, panel three or two, depending on if you're Boston or the blue chart, um, if I'm giving this panel answers to someone in this category, um, I'm doing something wrong, right? Uh, biblical counselors talk about uh, this. Um, what, what do we call biblical counseling with somebody who doesn't yet know Christ? It's evangelism. It's evangelism. And if in, in my wisdom of applying God's word, I bring some real life helps to someone who's not in Christ and, and they're able to clean up some things and go to hell, I've not served them well. And so the, the little ones in my home, uh, roommates, a husband, whoever it is that's closest to me in those relationships, um, thinking through what category are they in is, is really helpful. And, and for a lot of us, we probably have some people in our homes, uh, I don't know which one they're in. They don't know which one they're in yet. Um, and, and just recognizing that you can't go wrong preaching the gospel. Um, and, and then... Listen, with, with my own kids, believers and unbelievers, putting the expectation of what a Christian should be like and progressive conformity to Christ in front of them, even if they're in this panel, is, is, is a way to help them see, oh, this is what a Christian should look like, and I don't have those capacities. And your antenna is up, and you're thinking, gospel, right? And, and you're helping them see the gap between what God expects and what a believer can actually do and what they're incapable of. Um, so, um, you know, the, the, these things, the, the practice of dragging your own sorry heart before the word of God regularly has to overflow into the way you're helping those around you do that. And that extends into your home as well as into the church. It extends into workplaces and sporting events and wherever else you find yourself, your neighborhoods. Uh, in terms of thinking through, um, listen, my unsaved neighbor, 
was supposed to look like this. And something monumental happened, and now she looks like this. And man, she needs something otherworldly. Um, before we get to the fourth panel. Right. Anything else, Jamie? Thank you.